What I thought was the most interesting phenomenon is the amount of people who now follow the main auction houses, whether it's Sotheby's, Phillips or Christie's, as a kind of entertainment. Hi, I'm Andrew Goldstein, and this is The Art Angle, a podcast from Artnet News where the art world meets the real world, bringing each week's biggest story down to earth. This week, the subject of our show is less a story and more of a phenomenon. That phenomenon is Simone de Puri, a legendary auctioneer who has actually been called the Mick Jagger of auctions, a sobriquet too good not to repeat. De Puri has led a storied career in art that is impossible to squeeze into an introduction, but I'll try to capture the high points anyway. A baron by heredity who was born in the Swiss art capital of Basel, de Puri entered the art business with the help of the legendary dealer Ernst Beiler and swiftly blazed a trail of glory, rising through the ranks of Sotheby's to become an auctioneer, staged the first ever contemporary art auction in the Soviet Union in 1988, and ascend to become the auction house's chief worldwide auctioneer, before going on to forge the Phillips de Puri auction house, now known as Phillips, inject the state auction world with a new nightclub-esque vitality, and then move on to a string of illustrious businesses with the de Puri name. Along the way, he has starred in Bravo's reality show, Work of Art, The Next Great Artist, was the subject of a four-part BBC documentary, wrote a juicy tell-all memoir, has a memorable cameo in the hit Netflix series Emily in Paris, and has built an estimable art collection of his own. And only now am I getting to the high point, which to me is the fact that Simone de Puri is also a columnist for Art Dead News Pro, writing a monthly dispatch called The Hammer that everybody should read. It's full of invaluable perspective into how the art market really operates, together with accounts of what it means to be the ultimate art world insider. To talk about his career and how the art market is changing today, I'm very happy to have Simone de Puri on the show. Thank you very much for coming on The Art Angle, Simone. Thank you, Andrew. It's a pleasure for me to be part of your program, as it is also a pleasure for me to be able to write a column for Artnet News Pro. The pleasure is ours. So I have to ask, where are you zooming in from right now? I am zooming in from Monaco. Okay. So you're actually based in Monaco, which is fascinating from an art market perspective, because, you know, as we know, COVID has left an indelible imprint on all aspects of modern life, including the art business. And right now, it seems like the art market is both going global on the internet and simultaneously going more local in places where the affluent live in vacation, like Aspen, Palm Beach, and the Hamptons in the U.S., and then places like Gestad and St. Moritz in Switzerland. But then also Monaco has become a new flashpoint for the global art market. So tell me, what is the art scene in Monaco like today? The art scene in Monaco is quite vibrant. We are about to see the uh, fifth edition of Monte Carlo Art, which is an art fair that was started by Thomas Hoog, the young Swiss entrepreneur who also founded Art Genève. And it's a small fair, but extremely well attended with very good galleries participating at the Forum Grimaldi. And it always allows you to see art, you know, in a very kind of nearly domestic setting. Then in early July, there will be a very large, important Giacometti retrospective taking place at the Forum Grimaldi as well, which was done in collaboration with Giacometti Foundation in Paris. Hauser and Wirt has just opened a gallery in the amazing space 
next to Monaco One, which is this building built by Rogers, who was co-architect for the Centre Pompidou. And you have a number of other things happening shortly. You will have the art weekend taking place. And uh, Sotheby's is going to stage this fall, an auction of the Karl Lagerfeld collection. So there's plenty happening right here. And in fact, it makes a lot of sense because there are a lot of collectors based in Monaco itself. So you have a captive audience. And you've mentioned Stad, you've mentioned Aspen, uh, St. Moritz, etc. And during the height of the skiing season, all the top galleries fight to get the best spaces and do events and exhibitions to get the attention of the people who are temporarily there. But the difference with these places is in Monaco, you have that uh, captive audience all year long. And so you're not limited to just doing something in the summer season. Of course, July and August is high season here, but there is a lot happening here in October, a lot happening literally at all stages of the year. And bizarrely, I am now back in Monaco because I started nearly my professional life in Monaco in the mid-70s when Sotheby's was doing big auctions of mostly decorative arts, but also very fine old master paintings and in other categories. And then when the monopoly of French auctioneers ended in Paris, Sotheby's and Christie's moved to Paris. And since then, Monaco was a little less important as an auction center. But I'm therefore very happy that the Lagerfeld auction will take place in Monaco. It makes a lot of sense since Lagerfeld loved Monaco and spent a lot of his time here in Monaco. So most people know Monaco for Monte Carlo, which is the casino that sits in the center of town, kind of like the spinning hub of a roulette wheel. But the actual city-state is far more than that, as you said. As you know, It's kind of etched into the Mediterranean cliffside like some kind of Star Wars citadel and it's boasting all these incredibly affluent people who live there year-round so when art is shown in the galleries of a city like london or new york it becomes this kind of public good it's viewable by a large non-collecting population of art lovers and now that dealers are taking their wares to like more privileged places where the percentage of well-heeled actual potential collectors is much higher than the general population It's an interesting kind of change. It changes that dynamic a little bit. So is it smart for dealers in the long run to place such an emphasis on these kinds of privileged Loki? How do you understand that as working in the whole ecosystem? No, I think it's important to show art to as wide as possible public. And the big difference, I would say, between Monaco and some of the seasonal resorts that we have mentioned earlier is that Monaco is something with a lot of activities happening all year long, but also it's on the Côte d'Azur, it's on the borders of Italy, and so you have a very large territory where there's a lot of things happening as well. So in Antibes, for instance, there is a stunning exhibition that just opened at the Picasso Museum with 10 masterworks from the Neymar collection. The Fondation Mag in Saint-Paul-de-Vence is about to open another exhibition devoted this time to all the Giacometti's, not only to Alberto, but also to his two brothers, to his father, to his uncle. And then you have Musée Matisse, you have the Musée Chagall, you have the Musée Léger, you have the Musée Bonnard. You have so many extraordinary places nearby which attract art lovers from all over the world. You have the Museum in Nice, Marseille, of course, as a sensational museum. And then if you go into Italy as well, there is 
a whole geographical area here that can take advantage of all these different events happening. And in a way, moving from one place to another one that I've mentioned is as if you were going in Los Angeles from one part of town to another part of town. I think if that doesn't make people hungry to travel to Europe, I don't know what will, because that sounds like a incredible cultural destination. Your lifestyle for years and decades has been to jet from one auction to another event all over the world. And obviously that became impossible over the course of the last year and a half. How did the pandemic change the way you experience and engage with art and the way that you've been able to conduct your business? At first, the whole market was in total standstill. Not only were there no transactions taking place, but artworks themselves could not move because all art warehouses were locked up as well. So it was quite incredible to see the initial phase where nearly the whole world went on standstill. But very rapidly, one saw on um, social media how people were very creative and in a way using art to communicate. And there were so many little memes and little film snippets that started circulating using artworks as a basis, not only in the visual arts, but in music, in uh, applied arts in general. And then once warehouses started opening up again and people were becoming a little more mobile, the first auctions took place, and this time entirely online. And the sale rooms themselves were kind of transformed in some TV studios where the auctioneer was linked to screens with purchases all over the world. Even these first auctions did remarkably well. There was far less material available for collectors to buy. And by that stage, they were quite bored having been sitting around for quite some time. And the initial success and the realization that the market actually was in pretty good shape immediately made the confidence come back. And what I thought was the most interesting phenomenon is the amount of people who now follow the main auction houses, whether it's Sotheby's, Phillips or Christie's, as a kind of entertainment. The last evening sale of Sotheby's was apparently followed by 1.7 million people. Now, only a tiny fraction of these 1.7 million people will have been registered bidders. All the others were just following it for the spectacle. So it just shows that in a funny sort of way, it widened the audience of people following the art market. Also, it widened the access of some key specialists who normally were just communicating with their key clients and now we're forced in a way to communicate through social media, through various interviews and stuff like that. So suddenly they were able to communicate with a much wider audience. Now, of course, another reason is that the high net worth individuals are on the whole even much better off now than they were before. And at the top end of the market with a limited supply of truly great artworks, this can only have a positive impact on the market. But the market has also reacted positively with what I would say younger or more emerging art, where one has seen some remarkable results and lots of records being broken. One has also seen a kind of evolution of taste. I would say that certain trends that were already apparent pre COVID have come fortified, but there's really quite an evolution and we see a kind of a acceleration of the change in taste. 
it's a fascinating moment because you see both an expansion of the art market and also the pinnacle of it seems to be very, very healthy. So you've been a active participant in the auction sphere, but also on the primary market with some incredibly notable successes. You know, you once sold a Gauguin painting for $210 million, which is one of those prices that you don't always see in the auction world, but that happened behind closed doors on a semi-regular basis in the more opaque areas of the art market. So what is your sense of the masterpiece market today when it comes to private sales? Normally, owners of such works do not sell these works in a crisis moment. These works only become available in times when the market is perceived to be doing well. So we have seen quite rapidly during the pandemic at the upper end of the market, the level to gradually go back up. But if I look back in different times, for instance, in the 1990s, when there was a boom that had been fueled mostly by Japanese buyings. In May 1990, there was two auctions, one at Christie's, where the most expensive painting then ever sold, Dr. Gachet by Van Gogh did $82 million. And the next day, the most expensive Renoir ever sold, sold for $78 million. And it was the same Japanese gentleman who bought both of these works. And then in June of that same year, the sales at the main auction houses were 50% unsold. And from one second to another, all Japanese buyers had withdrawn from the market. And then the market took quite a long time to recover. Then it's only gradually during the 90s that things started to gradually getting better. Whereas in 2008, during the financial crisis, the market recovered very quickly. I mean, in October 2008, the sales at Sotheby's, Christie's and Phillips were also very much affected by the financial crisis. But in March 2009, you had the Pierre Berger Saint Laurent auction at Christie's, which became the most successful single owner collection at that stage. And these were precisely, it had a number of trophy works and it was a trophy provenance. And so that then brought the buyers and then gave the confidence back to the marketplace. Today, it seems there's a lot of talk about buyers from Asia taking larger and larger pieces of auction sales. But do you think that there is such a dependency on any one sector of the market today, or is it a little bit more spread out and evenly distributed? No, the market has become much more global since the 1980s. And yes, Asian buying, particularly Chinese buying, uh, is playing an important role in the marketplace now. And you're right to point out that in most auctions uh, that have taken place recently, but also prior to the pandemic, buying coming from Asia did play a big role. What is happening in the Middle East, which is uh, playing a major role, I think the biggest cultural project of the 21st century are taking place in the Middle East. When you look at what is happening in uh, Doha, what is happening in Abu Dhabi, what is happening in Sharjah, in uh, Dubai, in Saudi Arabia, you have major cultural projects that are on the way. 
And then you have buying in Russia and East Europe, former Soviet republics. American buying remains very strong and really very important. And the key collectors in Europe are not uh, inactive either. So I think we have a truly global market. The market is always dependent on the general mood. And we all know that a mood can swing very rapidly. In one of your columns, you noted that auction houses are very successful, obviously, in conducting auctions, but they're also moving into a very lucrative business in private sales where they have been landing these very high dollar deals with discrete clients around the world, which is the traditional domain of art galleries and art dealers. So if the auctions are going into private sales, why aren't the major galleries going into auctions? It's a question that I'm asking myself why they haven't done it. First of all, the auction houses have started having private sales departments since the mid-1990s. And they have been able to use the fact that thanks to the auctions, they know not only who buys what and who owns what, but also they know who tries to buy what because they have full information on not just the successful bidders, but on all the underbidders. So if you have a similar work that becomes available privately, they can approach in a very targeted way the potential purchasers. And indeed, the main auction houses, as a result of this, have become highly successful private dealers. And while they do not uh, publish their figures, I believe, for private sales, if they did, one would realize that they are not only biggest auctioneers, but they are amongst the absolute top private art dealers in the world. Now, I would say that galleries who represent the hottest artists on the primary market would be actually at least as well-placed as the main auction houses to sell these at auctions themselves. If art gallery represents a red-hot artist and they do an exhibition, and let's say that 25 works, and you have 150 people who want to buy those works. So it's a gallery that decides basically to whom they will sell each work. They decide what is strategically best for the artist. But what this causes is speculation because you have all the people who have not been able to get their hands on a work, who are desperate to get a work of a given artist. And so if one of the people, of the 25 people who are lucky enough to have been chosen by the gallery put it for auction at Sotheby's or Christie's, then you suddenly have a price hike and you may suddenly get a price which is three, four or five times higher than the primary market price. And so this is something that the gallery loses on, but most importantly, it's the artist that loses on that. So it would be very, very easy for the main galleries to sell these works at auctions themselves. And if an artist brings out 25 new works, Maybe they could sell 20 works in the old-fashioned way, but maybe they could just sell five works at auction. And by cutting out the speculation in between, I think it would be very good for everybody. It would be a win-win situation. I think that the reason why no gallery has done it yet is that they are so scared to lose the support of the artists whom they represent and that is very understandable because their primary responsibility is towards the artists. But 
at the end of the day, an artist wants to be guided overall in the marketplace. And guiding him or guiding her overall in the marketplace means helping not just with the primary market, but helping with the secondary market, helping with institutional exhibitions and helping with whatever commercial engagements these artists may have with brands, etc. So it's an overall looking after their careers. And I do feel that now, because of COVID, a lot is going to change, not just for the auction houses, but also for the galleries. And we see the first signs of that with the announcement that David Sverner has done, where he has created this new confederation, let's say, of like-minded galleries. I hear there are similar projects in preparation and that we will hear more about in the not-too-distant future. And so everybody, in a way, has to reinvent themselves. To make it clear for any listeners who don't know the difference between a gallery selling an artwork in an auction context or an auction house selling an artwork in an auction context. If an auction house does it, all the sales proceeds go to the auction house and the seller. But if a gallery was doing it, then they could obviously share some of the proceeds with the artists, which I think is a great idea. And Simone, in one of your columns, you said that you prefer auction sales to primary market sales on principle as being a more fair and well-functioning apparatus. Can you explain why that is? Being an auctioneer and a private dealer, I find it easier to sell work of art as an auctioneer because as an auctioneer, I can sell any work of art and it's whoever is going to bid the highest will get it. If I am a private dealer, I am unable to sell something that I don't believe in and don't love personally if you're doing a one-to-one transaction. But that is not the main reason. The main reason is I have so often I have offered works to somebody and would then articulate the price and then would say, but that's ridiculous. I'm simply not prepared to pay that price. And they let it go. Then that same work appears in an auction and that same person is then prepared to bid quite a bit more than what they before considered as absurd. Because of the auction process, they know that if they don't buy it right then at that moment, it's gone. Whereas when you offer something privately, they still feel that somehow they will have a second chance or second bite at it. Yesterday, actually, I was bidding on a little piece in the design sale of Philips. Lovely piece by Gabriela Crespi, two hippopotamus, a little bronze. And it had an estimate of four to $6,000. And I hung in there and I went up. And then finally, I realized that the level I was at was the equivalent of $40,000, i.e. 10 times the estimate. And then reason finally prevailed and I let go. But if anybody had asked $40,000 for these little hippopotamus, every person it had been offered to would have said it's crazy. And that just shows that it's a different psychology which is at play. So from a vendor's perspective, it is great if you can benefit from that psychology and from that competition. So, you know, you're so famous for being a charity auctioneer that that's actually the reason why you were cast for your starry cameo in Emily in Paris, which is the Netflix show better known in the Artnet offices as Emily in Paris. And you play an auctioneer who is selling a one-of-a-kind ensemble by the fictional couture genius Pierre Cadeau. What kind of reaction 
have you had for being in the show? And did it actually change your life in any way? No, it did not change my life. However, it was funny to see that for these split seconds that I appeared on the screen, I got more feedback than literally in anything that I've ever done in my long professional career. So that was the most funny thing. But even now, if I go to dinner or something, people tell me that they enjoyed seeing me on the series. So yes, I guess that things like that touch, of course, a much wider audience. And it's when you see that that you realize how small the art world still is. I mean, it has expanded enormously in the years that I've been in it but it still is infinitesimally small compared to its potential. Because when I'm as obsessed by, let's say, music or fashion or architecture, uh, other areas than art, and when you see the reach of the music world, it's infinitely, infinitely wider, or the world of cinema. There I feel that thanks to what is happening now with the changes of habits, I think that the art world finally will also become much more global and will have a much wider audience because we all react to looking at art in the same way that we all react when we hear a piece of music. It doesn't matter if we are connoisseurs or not connoisseurs. Every one of our reactions is legitimate, but people are intimidated to express reaction when they look at an artwork, which is ridiculous. Why should one be intimidated? We react to visual impulses as strongly as we do to sound. Another interesting development that you've touched on is how the gap between the art world and pop culture is shrinking. And, you know, it's even gotten to the point where some people say that art, contemporary art especially, is holding a place in the culture that music once held in terms of giving people opportunities to come together. And you are yourself a very well-known music fanatic. You regularly DJ events. You once created what must be both the only and the greatest auctioneer-themed music video in existence. If anybody hasn't seen it, they should Google If I Had a Hammer. It's a absolute classic. And you're also specifically a hip-hop fanatic. You were one of the early pioneers of the intersection between hip-hop and the art market because you organized the sale at Phillips of custom works of jewelry that used to be owned by Biggie Smalls, Tupac, and other legendary rappers. And it was scheduled for October of 2008, which is obviously right after the financial collapse. Did that sale actually ever happen? No, tragically, that sale did not happen because there was one piece in that auction which was meant to have belonged to a certain hip-hop star. And he wrote us a letter saying that he never owned that piece. We felt we couldn't take the risk of having just one work in the sale not being what it was meant to be. And so, very sadly, we did not go ahead with this auction. It had incredible pieces of hip-hop jewelry, because for me, hip-hop jewelry is possibly the most important innovation that has happened in the jewelry world in the second half of the 20th century. Because when you think of what Fabergé did, and then Cartier, when they did the jewels of the Duchess of Windsor and all of that, but then when I looked at jewelry auction catalogs at Sotheby's, Christie's, but also at Philips. I was bored by these sales because I felt there was little innovation in the jewelry itself and little originality. But as a lover of hip-hop music, every 
album cover, you could see these amazing pieces of jewelry that the main hip hop stars were wearing. And I just loved it. I thought it was brilliant. It was a sense of fun, a sense of uh, humor. And that's why I wanted to do that auction, because I wanted to do the spotlight on the importance of hip-hop jewelry, because hip-hop is a much wider phenomenon than just hip-hop music. Its impact on culture as a whole cannot be overstated, also on fashion, of course. A lot of the pioneers and the real impresarios of the hip-hop world today, you know, like Kanye, Jay-Z, Swiss Beats, are also art collectors, and they've been popularizing art for a whole new generation of aficionados, you know, positioning it as this desirable luxury in a way that has, I think, been very important in spreading its appeal. How do you understand how this transformation of how art is being you know, popularized in a new context is happening? And are there any major and very exciting collectors from the hip-hop world that maybe we don't know about? I'm glad you mentioned the fact that the main hip-hop stars are active art collectors. But this was not the case when it started. And I would say that the credit mostly goes to Kanye West, who was the first to have a real interest in contemporary art. He asked uh, Takashi Murakami to do the cover art for one of his albums. And then he contacted George Kondo to do the cover art for another album of his. And um, you can never see it properly because it's pixelated because it's a nude woman. And so when you look at it on most music websites, you only see it pixelated. But the initiative for this came from Kanye and not from the visual artists. He was the one who sought out the contact with these visual artists. And then Pharrell Williams, of course, also has been a key factor in this. He did this collaboration with Murakami. They even created a sculpture together, which is one of my favorite works of Murakami. And then Jay-Z did the video, Picasso Baby. And you have a lot of characters from the art world that appear in that video. So all this helped. And I think that Kanye, Farrell, and Jay-Z really set the tone. And then collecting really became quite widespread in the hip-hop community. But you also have to take into account that in the art world, Basquiat was the only artist of color who was making top prices at auction or exhibited in key institutions at all. And luckily, all of that has changed. I think that this all started a movement which had much wider repercussions. And I think it's a pleasure to see now that the market also, for instance, for female artists has completely changed. And you have now many more female artists represented in key exhibitions, key galleries, and so on. So there is a kind of a transformation that has been very positive. So we talked about... NFTs a little bit. And you are also a very active participant and believer in the power of Instagram. So I was checking your Instagram feed and I saw that you were just in Venice. If it wasn't for COVID, the whole art world would be in Venice right around now for the opening of the Venice Biennale. Your photos of Venice show an empty city. So what brought you there? I was invited to go to Venice to speak on a panel 
about NFTs, in fact, which is the main topic around the place. But the beauty about it was that it did take place during the Architectural Biennale in Venice. So it's not the Art Biennale, but the Architectural Biennale. And then, to my amazement, there were plenty of extraordinary exhibitions taking place, namely the wonderful Bruce Nauman exhibition at the Punto de la Dogana, uh, François Pinault. And then there were two incredible Baselitz exhibitions, one at the Palazzo Grimani, organized by Gagosian, which was spectacular. And the Palazzo itself, which I had never seen, is completely amazing. There was one Baselitz exhibition organized by Teros Hopak at the uh, Emilio Vedova Foundation, which was also remarkable. Then there was the collection of glass animals by the former Louvre chief curator Pierre Rosenberg at the Chini Foundation, which uh, is absolutely remarkable. And so Venice is a paradise for any art lover. And while obviously it's sad to see the city so empty, as a visitor, it's of course a dream because you don't need to queue anywhere and uh, you can enjoy the beauty of the city without having to fight your way through a crowd. You bring up the NFT conference, so I have to ask, what was the most interesting thing that you learned at the NFT conference? Well, maybe the most interesting thing was in a panel discussion. I was moderating actually a panel yesterday in uh, Cap d'Antibes, which I enjoyed very much because it brought the physical art world together with the digital art world together with the musical world. It was an initiative of Kamya Maleki and a collaboration between the Iranian artist Bassam Bakhtiar and the musician Tiny Temper and the digital artist Vector Meldru. They are doing the first NFT artist residence in Saint-Jean-Cap-Ferrat, the four seasons there. And the result of that collaboration will be a few NFTs that will drop on the 21st of July. And I was delighted to meet Tiny Temper, who's also a musician that I greatly admire. And there is the example of a highly successful musician who has a very keen interest in art. And it was really the friendship between him and uh, Bastien Bakhtiar that led to them doing these NFTs. And Victor Meldrew, who had never created any physical works, is helping them to transform and link the music of Tiny Temper with the physical works of Bassam Bakhtiar, transforming the whole thing in a kind of collective artwork, which will be the NFTs that will drop on July 21st. That sounds, I mean, extraordinary. And it's just part of the many things that you are working on today that it seems like you have a lot of projects that cover an entire range. You're curating a show at the Waldorf Astoria. You're working with the great silver specialist Asprey. And you also have a new program that you are showing exhibitions in artist studios. Can you talk a little bit about that? I believe it's called Depuri Presents? Yes, we have done an exhibition now in the studio of Henry Hudson. Henry Hudson is an artist that I have admired for quite some time. I love his psychedelic jungles made in plasticine. I also love the ceramics that he does together with his brother. 
And when I was in uh, Dallas with him pre-COVID, I said he took a snapshot of me on his iPad, and then a couple of hours later sent a iPad work that he had done with a Procreate app. And I was so amazed by it that I suggested to him that he should do an exhibition with people from the art world. And so he contacted a lot of his friends and some of my friends and has done this show called Henry Hudson Microcosm. Now, it goes way beyond just doing an iPad drawing because he then looked for adequate surfaces to have those works then printed on with a UV flatbed printer. So, for instance, the portrait of Ai Weiwei, he printed on dried flowers. The uh, portrait of Sean Scully, he printed on slate, and so on. And so the result of it is a very physical work with texture and everything. And it's a unique work, i.e. despite the fact that it was created on a iPad and then printed with a UV flatbed printer, it is a work that, when you look at it, is highly physical. And so I was really intrigued by this combination of the latest technology that is offered to an artist and then the results, which is quite old-school physical. And I think that these portraits are very striking. And Henry Hudson has agreed to do commission paintings because I'm amazed that so few artists nowadays do commission portraits. And this, after all, has been a main strand in artistic practice through the ages. So this will go on till the end of July. And then we have a very exciting artist that (laughs) we will do the same thing with, an artist who has a studio in a totally different part of the world. Of course, we can only do that with artists who are not currently represented by one main gallery, but there are plenty of really very talented people who are in that category. And it's also a nice way to give access to the work of these artists. So you are obviously a a nonstop entrepreneur, and evidently this also runs in your family. One of your sons, Alban Dupuri, recently launched a new non-alcoholic beer called Al's that has been generating a lot of excitement, getting a glowing write-up in the Washington Post. I've actually tasted it. It's delicious. Um, What do you think you would be doing if long ago Ernst Beiler did not enable you to really get a career in art? Uh, I have no idea. I remember uh, my mother uh, arranging that appointment with Ernst Beiler And she said, you know, can you please see my youngest son? He's a slightly lost case. I just don't know what what to do with him because I was kind of one-track minded. And so I am eternally grateful to him to have set me on to the right track. But at the outset, I had this passion and this interest in art. And so I feel privileged. You know, I always say if you love candies, there's no better place to work than in the candy store. But I really admire my son, Alban, who did this new non-alcoholic beer called Al, which I have sadly not been able to taste yet because I have not been able to go to the United States and I can't wait to go to the States, first of all, to see my son. But I also look forward to taste that beer because I think one is so much more health conscious these days. So if you have an excellent non-alcoholic beer, I think it's a great thing to have. 
Well, Simone, this has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much for coming on The Art Angle. Thank you so much, uh, Andrew. It was a real pleasure to speak to you. So that's it for this week's episode of The Art Angle. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Also, take a moment to rate and review us. It will help other listeners discover what we're doing. And if you have some feedback or maybe a recommendation for a future episode, go ahead and email us at podcasts at artnet.com. That's P-O-D-C-A-S-T-S at A-R-T-N-E-T dot C-O-M. The Art Angle is produced by Sonia Manolili, Tim Schneider, and Caroline Goldstein. Thanks for listening and see you next week. 